I'll never forget the birth of my second child. Not that you forget the birth of any child. But his was an especially neat entry into the world, and it made a a particular impression upon me. You see, after enjoying some Chipotle and watching Stanford trounce UCLA in football as Chelsea labored, I found myself in an unusual situation. Long story short, the uh, nurse that was attending to my wife thought that she wasn't really in labor and was experiencing what they call Braxton Hicks contractions. Um, Eventually, after a couple hours, uh, she was proven wrong by the doctor's measurement when she announced eight centimeters. And so we were pretty far along, if you've ever been in that position before. At which point, the nurse and my doctor and all the other attending physicians, they, they left the room to gather medical supplies, which left me alone in the room. Well, after they'd made their way down the hall, Chelsea, ever so sweetly, uh, told me, quote, I need to push. And so, who was I to argue? I figured, uh, figured I'd evaluate some, infer- I'd investigate the situation first and, and, and see what there was to be done. And uh, after investigating, with the utmost poise, I declared in a voice loud enough for the medical staff to hear me, she's crowning, and I'm alone. However, I was ready to do what needed to be done, after all. How hard could delivering a baby be? I'd seen it done at least once, and I'd seen quarterbacks take countless snaps from center. So I was ready, I got myself positioned, and I thought, I can't believe this is going to happen. <laughs> However, at the last possible moment, my, my physician tagged me out, and moments later, Owen moved from womb to world. I still take credit for delivering him, though, because it was that close. You know, stories and experiences, they, ha- they have a way of shaping us and staying with us. An incredible way of connecting us to the past by branding themselves on our minds. I'm sure all of you have had experiences that you'll never forget. Proposing, moving into your first place that's all your own, having children, going to college. As we continue through Exodus this morning, we find ourselves in chapters 11 through 13. And this is where we find the defining story of God's people. The Passover will become the means by which God's people remember and participate in God's saving act of mercy. It will be the tradition that teaches God's people who they are. It's going to be that unforgettable, shaping story of their very identities. It's through this story that they will learn, and this is our main idea today, that God gives undeserved life to all who eat the supper of the Lamb. This morning we're actually going to be considering two stories together. We will look at the life-changing story of the Exodus as well as the life-changing story of the Lamb. And we're going to do so by uh, thinking about three words that try to give description to the text before us this morning. They are debt, payment, and participation. Debt, payment, participation. Let's pray together and get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Help us to delight in your word this morning together. That this time would be a time that brings great joy to all of us and encourages us as we uh, think more deeply about what it means to know you and to walk with you and to walk together as we do that. Be present with us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So in order for us to best understand the Passover, I think that it's prudent that we first understand God's claim on the firstborn and, and what the firstborn meant to early culture. And so what we're actually going to do is start in chapter 13, and we're going to look at verse 1, and then we're going to drop down and look at verses 11 through 13 of that chapter. Um, we're going to point out a couple emphasis and then go on a field trip to somewhere else in Scripture before we come back, right? It's going to be really fun. So look at 13 verse 1. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And he picks up the same thread again in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. All right, two primary reasons for this emphasis on the firstborn. First, this comes post-Passover, and so it's going to be a reminder and a reflection of the fact that God has bought his people out of Egypt. Secondly, it's to make explicit God's claim or right to the firstborn of everything and everyone. You see, the fact that the firstborn needed to be redeemed signaled to everyone in the firstborn's family that a debt was owed to God. In ancient culture, the firstborn actually represented the whole family, especially it was the firstborn son, I should say. And so the need for every firstborn son to be redeemed revealed the need for every family everywhere to be redeemed. In ancient cultures, you typically didn't have individual aspirations for prominence or prosperity. Your aspirations were uh, primarily for the prominence and success of your family. Uh, if one member of the family was honored, then the whole family was honored. If one member of the family failed or um, did something shameful, then shame came upon the whole family. Is is hard, especially for Western people like ourselves to kind of get our minds around. We are, after all, rugged individualists, right? The thought I think we have if somebody in our family messes up is, well, that's them. It's not me. I'm my own person. I'm, I'm me, and that's the, I'm not responsible for what my family does. I think the truth of the matter, though, is that as much as we might not like it, we're really shaped a tremendous amount by our families. Sometimes we, we see this fact come out, even in our culture, as individualistic as we are, uh, when something bad happens. I think of uh, the Sandy Hook shootings or uh, Columbine, if you go back even further. One of the first questions that came out from the media was, how could this happen? Where were the parents? What was their life situation like? And whether we intended to or not, tremendous shame was brought on those associated with the people that carried out such great evil. I mean, the point here that I'm trying to make is that as individualistic as our culture is, we're still more family-oriented than we think. The family still plays a crucial role in our lives. And this idea that we are who we are, we create our own meaning completely independent of anyone else, is, is just patently untrue. 
think it's at loggerheads also with what most cultures and most centuries have believed. Other cultures and other uh, centuries have had a far more balanced understanding about how a person relates to the whole family. So I want you to keep that in mind as we skip over to Genesis 22. So in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he tells him this, Abraham, offer up your only son whom you love as a sacrifice to me. Abraham obeys and he feels anguish about that, but but his anguish is not for the reason that most of us think. He he doesn't think that the command is monstrous or crazy. He understands this as a legitimate command of God because he understands that Isaac belongs to God and that God has the right to exact payment for sin. Tim Keller explains, at a time when people didn't think of themselves as individuals but as families, And at a time when the firstborn got the whole estate, God sent a message that was unmistakably clear to them, but opaque to us. God says over and over again that the life of every firstborn is his unless it is redeemed. That's bought. Their lives are forfeit unless they are redeemed. Ancient people immediately understood this because In the firstborn, all of their hopes were embodied. God was saying that there is a debt, a debt of sin, over every family on the face of the earth. And that the firstborn is liable for the way everyone else is living, unless they are redeemed. Abraham understood this. He understood that Isaac was going to be sacrificed. He was going to die for the sins of the family. He understood this command to be consistent with God's character, even though we'll see later on that God forbids child sacrifice. At this point, it makes sense to Abraham that God would exact this payment for sin. Had God said to Abraham, go into the tent and kill Sarah, Sarah's his wife, he would have gone, well, no. He would have rightly concluded that he was hallucinating or hearing a demon. God wouldn't call him to do something he could reason at variance with his will and his righteousness and his word. But when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he realized that God was calling in a debt. He realized that God was doing something God had the right to do. He needed judgment. Judgment was going to fall on the family of Abraham. Now you might say, wait, 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 wait. I don't really buy this. The idea that every family and every person on the face of the earth is under a penalty of sin because they haven't lived right. I mean, I don't believe in transcendent moral truths. I make my own rules and my own standards, right? We, we can do that. We can get postmodern for a second, right? It's kind of the water we swim in nowadays. Uh, I think Francis Schaeffer had an excellent illustration to uh, combat or meet this objection. He said, if you can imagine having an invisible tape recorder that hung around your neck, and the only time it picked up anything was when you said what someone else ought to do, and then at the end of your life you had this tape recorder played back to you, what you would discover is that you don't meet your own standards. You don't measure up. That you can't pass judgment, even if that judgment is based only on your own criteria. No one passes judgment. No one measures up. We can't meet our own standards, let alone the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule. All of our sin is against God, and it cannot be swept under the rug. It demands a payment. You can think of it like this, if you come over to my house and you break a lamp, uh, 
I'm a nice guy, so maybe I'll say, ah, don't worry about it, I forgive you. But at the end of the day, to make things right, I have to pay to replace the lamp, you have to pay to replace the lamp, or I have to go without light in the room. Either way, there is a cost, and someone is absorbing that cost. And likewise, in our relationship with God, we've done far more than break a lamp. We've despised his glory by choosing to follow our hearts instead of listening to his word. We owe him a debt, and that debt is on every family. Abraham understands that that debt is embodied in the embodiment of the family, his firstborn son, Isaac. He understands Isaac must pay for his sin. And so Abraham heads to the mountain God has told him to go to to make this offering. Abraham has Isaac carrying the wood for the offering. And on the way, Isaac, you know, he's a smart guy. He asks a good question. He says, uh, Father, wood, knife, fire, um, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice that we're going to make? And Abraham's uh, answer here is actually astounding. He says, God will provide the lamb for our offering. Some time passes. They get to where they're going. Abraham binds Isaac to the wood and prepares to plunge the knife through his heart. And the Lord says, Abraham, don't do it. Abe lifts his eyes and he discovers a ram caught in a thicket. Now, true, the ram dies in Isaac's place as his substitute and points us forward to the death of Jesus in our place as our substitute. But the thrust of the story makes it seem as if the ram is sacrificed not as a sin offering for atonement, but as a thank offering. You see, we leave this narrative with a question. Where is the lamb? A lamb never shows up. should also raise us another question. How can God be just and let Isaac live? From Abraham's perspective, the question might sound like this, even before they had the whole ram situation. How can you judge me and keep your promises to me at the same time? The promises are supposed to come through Isaac. Where is the lamb? At the end of Genesis 22, it seems that God has passed over sin, but sin has not yet been paid for. It seems that God has deferred payment on the debt that is owed to him. One thing's clear, though. The redemption of the firstborn, indeed of the family, can come only through death. And so we leave Genesis 22 waiting on a lamb. So fast forward to Exodus, and we're going to pick up, with that in mind, put that on the back burner for now, we're going to pick up in chapter 11 where we left off last week, which is actually the continuation of a conversation that was going on between Pharaoh and Moses. If you remember, Pharaoh told Moses, if I ever see your face again, you're dead. Well, Moses didn't take kindly to that, and so in response to Pharaoh, he, he dropped that final plague on him. He says, God is going to kill every firstborn in Egypt at around midnight. And then he storms out, verse 11, 8 tells us he was really mad. And God reminds him, Pharaoh's not going to listen, and this plague is going to happen. And then we find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 12, where we, where we read this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat 
you shall make your count for the lamb. They're supposed to share. If you can't afford your own lamb, there's not enough of you. Get together in one house, eat one lamb. That's what they're saying. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is important enough to make sure you have it in stock, right? That's why they got to get it some days early. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, and on that night I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Some of you might, why animals here? Uh, a lot of the gods of Egypt correspond to animals as a continuation of God showing his superiority over Egypt's gods, as we saw in the plagues. Continuing in verse 12. Both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Quick summary here, Passover in a nutshell. A lamb will die sacrificially so an Israelite family can be passed over in judgment. All right, skip those next six verses. We're going to come back to them later. We're in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Pay, pay attention here. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through the, to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The destroyer is going to cut through Egypt like a hot knife through butter. And he doesn't care if you're an Israelite or an Egyptian. He's bringing God's right wrath upon everyone who does not take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. Mark Dever notes, The blood is a sign of salvation for the Israelites. But notice that it was not just the Egyptians who were subject to God's wrath and deserved his punishment. God does not say that the Israelites were exempt from judgment just because they were Israelites or because they lived better lives than the Egyptians. No, the Israelites themselves were under God's wrath, and so they needed to be protected. If they would be saved, it would not be because God's justice has no claim against them. It would be because when God saw the blood on the door frames, the blood of the sacrificial substitute, he would in grace pass over that house as he judged spread upon the door frames, the blood of the lamb symbolically covered those within whose own blood rightfully should have been shed in penalty for their sins. All owed a debt. Payment is required. And those who are spared 
are spared by their faith in a substitute. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. In every house, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. This leaves us with another big question. How can a lamb take the place of any person, especially someone as valuable in the family as the firstborn son? Pharaoh, when this happens, is immediately broken, and he tells Moses and Aaron to do what they've been asking to do. He says, get out, be gone, and bless me also. And the rest of the Egyptian population reflects his sentiment, saying, we're all going to die if you don't get up out of here, like, right now, right? That's what they tell him, go, be gone. And the Israelites, they grab all of their stuff quickly, and they're heading for the hills. I imagine it was a funny scene. They're like, quick, grab the pots and pans and that unleavened bread. Let's get out of here. I think contemporary terms, they were grabbing their iPhones and a wad full of cash and just getting to getting, right? They were on their way. And it's interesting um, that the cash they would have been grabbing was from the Egyptians, right? Did you catch that? It's in verse 36. Remember, God had told Moses back in chapter 3 that after he struck Egypt with signs and wonders, that Moses was to take all the girls shopping, that the women would be the ones to plunder the Egyptians. He said, but each woman shall ask her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And now we see the fulfillment here in 1236. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the Hebrews, along with this mixed multitude in verse 38 of chapter 12, which is an ethnically diverse group of people that's joined them by faith, all of them and a bunch of their animals, they've got all their stuff, and they are leaving Egypt with haste. They're getting out of Dodge. I mean, the amount of people leaving it at this point, it must have been staggering. I picture something uh, like New York, um, New York City and Times Square on New Year's Eve, right? that big throng of people. That's the kind of amount of people we're talking about all going in the same direction trying to leave. I imagined it would have been something to see as we find God finally delivering on his promise to deliver his people out of Egypt. It is striking, though, that this deliverance comes not because there's anything worthy in the Israelites, but by grace. Because right, God's judgment was on everyone. The only thing that exempted them was the blood of the Lamb. Firstborn belonged to God. All owe him a debt, all owe payment. One of the things that's important to note, I think, is when you see judgment like this in the Bible, it's always a preview for the final judgment that we find at the end of the Bible. All these, they're like uh, the, the big day before the Lord, day of the Lord judgment in seed form. You get a preview. And God mets out some of that judgment on people, and then he, he passes over others. And what this preview demonstrates to us is that it doesn't matter who your mommy is, or who your father is, or where you're from, or what you've done, but what matters, what will save you, what exempts you from the judgment of God is faith and participation in God's word. 
if we go back to 12, where we left off in verse 14, one of the things we find is there's all these uh, instructions about ceremonial law and keeping holidays kind of mixed together with uh, the parables here. As a reader, you've been reading along and, and you are almost exhausted when you get to the end of these 10 plagues and we've been waiting for the climax. This is the moment we've been waiting for and it gets like two measly verses. Like all this buildup and it keeps getting interrupted by other things. You're like what, what is all this stuff about rules? Couldn't this have waited till like Leviticus so I didn't have to read it? But these instructions are vital. And they show us something really amazing. God's telling the people to remember the Passover before it even happens. Look at that in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Moses takes the next few verses here, and he uses verses 43 through 50 later to go into considerable detail about the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which happens in concert with that, and it's a week-long festival. Why spend so much time on these issues right now? And I think the answer is the priority of remembering and participating. Later on, as the Israelites remember the Passover, and they eat that unleavened bread as they did that first night, it be a stark reminder of what the Lord had done. You can imagine what it'd be like to eat unleavened bread for just a day. I'd probably have a hard time. I like bread to be fluffy, just me. But imagine eating it for a whole week. It'd have a way of making an impression upon you, searing the ideas that it represents onto your conscience. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are supposed to be powerful, everlasting observances whereby God's love for his people will be remembered. Indeed, listen to this, reenacted until the end of time. See, Yahweh's acts on behalf of his people are never meant to be anything less than acts that transcend time and space. Passover is not just an event, writes Peter ends, and it's not just for one night. The Israelites from now on are to remember this night, impress it on their collective consciences, and pass it down to their children. It is to be a reminder not just of what God has done, but of what he continues to do. By celebrating the Passover and the feast, God's people, in some mysterious sense, participate in the Exodus themselves. A point that's still remembered in Passover celebrations this day. As Jews are often uh, found saying, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came himself out of Egypt. One of the things we note as it relates to these celebrations is that a lack of faithfulness in obeying God's commands shows a lack of saving faith in God. So that the proof of the faith is a faithful life. And that's, that's why we read that anyone can participate in the celebration as long as they bear the mark of faith, which in this case is circumcision. And it's why we read that if someone fails to keep these statutes, they are to be cut off from Israel. See, over and over again, how the Passover connects future generations the past. We read three times that when children ask, what does this mean? They're to be taught the meaning of the meal and about their own identity, their own salvation. So I think one of the ways that this is uh, kind of summarized best is in um, 13, 18, I'm sorry, 13, 14. You can also see it in 12, 27, but I'm going to be reading from 13, 14. When your child asks, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, 
the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. So to paraphrase, son, we as a family have hope for the future, and I am able to redeem you because the Lord redeemed us from slavery and passed over us in judgment because we believed his promises and took shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. I mean, can you imagine how vividly this point would be made as the family gathered around the table and the son stared the judgment that he deserved in the face? A whole lamb. Perfect, without blemish, no broken bones, laying dead on the table. A lamb that was to be eaten as a reminder that it died in the place of the firstborn son and indeed the entire family. But also be that which sustained them by providing nourishment. It really is striking. Friends, this is what we have before us as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. For it is when Jesus transforms the Passover feast into the first supper of the new covenant that our questions about the lamb make sense. Remember the two questions? Where is the lamb? How can a lamb substitute for a person? As Jesus presides over the Passover feast and explains it, that's what the presider does. He would present the meal and explain what everything meant. Jesus is presiding over this meal in Mark 14, and this is how he explains it. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He is diverting from the script. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There are two shocks to this meal. First, there is no lamb. One can imagine the disciples looking at each other and thinking, what is this? What kind of a Passover meal is this? There's no meat. There's no lamb. Is Jesus getting cheap on us? Or frugal, as my wife might say. We can imagine their collective jaws drop as they hear him deliver the second shock. Jesus says, the meal is me. It's at this point the disciples understand that there is no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. At once it becomes clear how a lamb can substitute for every human life. The lamb is infinitely valuable. The lamb is God. These truths rushed through their mind. Chills must have erupted on their skin. Where is the lamb of God? At the table. How can a lamb die in the place of sinful human beings? The lamb is God. All at once, John the Baptist's words made sense to them as they obeyed them for the first time. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus whom they followed, they've lived their lives with. They realize he's lived a perfect life. That he's preparing to die in their place. What kind of a God is this that he takes on flesh and dies for the people he created? One thinks of that refrain in Exodus, there is no one like this God. 
And as they eat the meal, they anticipate what will become of Jesus. And as we eat it, we look back and we see him, the whole lamb, perfect, without blemish, no broken bones, hanging dead on the cross for us. Friends, listen, this concept of substitution, it is at the very heart of both sin and salvation, writes John Stott, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And note note this incredible twist. In the Old Testament, it is the beloved Son who is redeemed through a substitution of some sort. But Christ... The firstborn son is the means of redemption. It is in Christ that God actually claims fully his right to the firstborn son. He belongs to God. By sacrificing the firstborn son of God, God's redemption of his people is now complete. The great irony is that the true firstborn son is not protected as was Israel, but he has become the enemy of God as was Egypt. In his death, God's firstborn son is more like Egypt than Israel in that he bears God's wrath. But three days later, he rises to exaltation, proving his person, his power, his ability to rescue, and the truth that the wrath of God was satisfied in him. Through this special son, God fulfills another purpose. It's the redemption not of Israel the firstborn, but of Israel the lateborn, as John Levinson puts it. With Christ's death and resurrection, You see, the true spiritual pedigree of God's people comes to light. The people of God are not firstborn, but they become firstborn through their union with Christ, the true firstborn Son of God. The family of God lives. We live because the firstborn Son of God died, rose from the dead, and lives forevermore. And that by faith in Him, we're united to Him. We get to share in everything that is His because he took everything that was ours. Communion, the Lord's Supper, it's it's the family tradition of the saints. And as we've said in the past, traditions teach. When we eat this meal, we teach just as Israel did in keeping the Passover. When our children ask, why do we keep this meal? We answer, we as a family have hope for the future because the Lord redeemed us from slavery and passed over us in judgment because we have believed his promises and taken shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. A couple words of application here. Traditions teach, and those things which we are taught most regularly have a way of sticking with us. So let me uh, appeal to you to build some traditions and rituals into your life, into your daily life, into your family life. Maybe say prayers before meals. Pray together as a family, once or twice a week. It doesn't take much. Set up regular times of Bible reading and prayer for yourself. Memorize Scripture. Get creative. Find ways to kind of dog your parts of your day with prayer, with meeting with the Lord. I always thought recently, this is way off topic, but like there's a verse in Colossians that says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt and be gracious I thought, man, I should probably get that reference and like get a little label maker and put it on my salt shaker to remind me to be careful with my words and to be kind. I mean, think of ways that you can build this remembrance of the gospel and what God calls you to into your life. 
Older folks, I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon in giving you an additional word of application. Do not die, O ye gray heads. I told you it was Spurgeon because I couldn't get away with that. Do not die, O ye gray heads. Do not pass away from this earth with all those pleasant memories of God's loving kindness to be buried with you in your coffin. But let your children and your children's children know what the everlasting God did for you. Church, we must teach the gospel to one another all the time. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We gather together on Sundays. We do life together throughout the week so that we don't forget the gospel. One of my favorite stories about Martin Luther is he had a congregant once complain to him, Martin, you preach the same thing, the same message every week. To which Martin Luther responded, because every week you forget it. We are a forgetful people prone to wander, and we need to hear the gospel daily. We need to hear it from others. We need to preach it to ourselves. And when we eat this meal, we are doing that very thing in some mysterious way. We preach the gospel. Indeed, we connect to all the saints who have eaten it before us, all the disciples that will eat it after us, and the marriage supper of the Lamb that awaits us. We are connected. See, the story of the lamb, as I mentioned, the marriage supper of the lamb that awaits us, the story of the lamb doesn't end. It started in Genesis 22. We saw it again in Exodus 12, once more in Mark 14. But it doesn't end with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. It ends with the return of Christ. The lamb of God will return to rightly judge all sin and put an end to evil. All sin has been judged in Christ but you must take shelter beneath his blood or it will be judged on the last day when he returns to make all things new. Non-Christian, I appeal to you this morning. Take shelter beneath the blood of the lamb. Follow Jesus. Only those that participate in the life of Christ will be saved. Only those who profess faith and eat the supper of the Lamb, receive undeserved life from God. Church, as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we do so with delight, knowing that as hard as this world is, as much suffering as there is, that our happily ever after is not far. It's in anticipation of that time when the Lamb of God is seated on the throne that we eat and drink. In communion, we look back to what Christ has done for us on the cross with great gratitude. And we also look forward to that day when he drinks it anew with us. I want to read about that time now, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. And I'll pray, and then uh, if the ushers want to come forward, uh, we'll continue into a time of communion together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the great Christian hope, friends. Life without regret, forever with God, giving Him glory and enjoying His presence as we delightfully sing to Him the praises He is due with one another. I'm so glad that we are all part of this great family by the blood of the great firstborn Son. So glad that God gives undeserved life to all who eat of the supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus died in our place for our sins as our substitute so that by faith in him we can have life. We thank you that his death doesn't just exempt us from your wrath, but that it provides nourishment for us, resources for us to live this life in a way that's honoring to you now. Father, we ask that this family tradition of communion would not be a dead ritual, but one that is thrilling. As it reminds us of the Lamb of God slain, raised, and reigning. Pray these things in the Lamb's name, Jesus. Amen.